looking at a church in Corinth that is struggling. They have uh, allowed the wisdom and philosophy of man. They have uh, allowed their desires, their, uh, their styles and methods of, of living life to corrupt the body of Christ. They have brought it with them. Uh, and if you think about it, many times we do too. We will bring things that we have been taught or we have grown up with, and we bring them in as wisdom, we bring them in as understanding, and yet they are of man. They do not hold a candle to the wisdom of God, and there is a time of chastening and pruning that the children of God will go through where they will be asked, do you trust him? Uh, and sometimes what I've realized in my life and what I've realized actually through the study of this text is that God's ways are not our ways. And if we actually lay God's ways down to our understanding, they are completely illogical. They don't make sense because we all understand how it has to work down here. And yet on our East, uh, Christmas Eve uh, message, I shared with you that he took the form of a child so that he can be and understand every single thing that you and I would ever struggle with. And that was the only that was the whole purpose for the incarnation was that you could have a merciful high priest who in all ways was tempted but was without sin and is faithful and merciful to you in all things. And that's what he's showing here and yet <clears throat> the church in Corinth about 50 miles away from Athens, Greece was in a society of litigation. You know what? In my, you guys know that I love history, and that's sometimes is a detriment, but I do love history. I cannot see anything different than the, in the society of Corinth than the society of Castle Rock, Colorado. I don't see anything different. Um, you know, you guys may want to try. Um, they didn't have cable TV. Um, but when I look at uh, a society of litigation, when I look at a society of immorality, when I look at a society that is self-first in all things, okay, and we, we get good at it. We've, we've manipulated it now that I can show you my piety in my self-serving way. And, and it's, it's amazing how we can, uh, if you ever have a conflict, I guarantee 99% of your conflicts is you. Your problem. Uh, you know, there's a simple text in the fourth chapter of Philippians uh, that I rest in, and many times is that uh, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but in all humility consider others more important than yourself. Uh, if you live by that understanding, you can never ever have a conflict with anybody. It's impossible. Even to the text here where he says, why not rather be wronged than defrauded? But I have my rights. No, you don't. You are not your own. You have been bought and paid for with a price. You have a new master. And, and we really miss this. I'm going to go back through this quickly. In verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul is trying to explain to them that they have forgotten the position of the church. They've forgotten the position of the church. He reminds them. And he says, do you not know that the church will judge the world? Do you not know that the church will judge angels? Okay, the first response that will come out of that will be, well, but you don't understand. 
That's in the future. Right now, we are just frail humans trying to pick our way through. And then in verse 4, he deals with that. The little transgression, the little translation there is not a question. It is a statement because that's what he's falling out of there in those first three verses. And the statement lays out something to this effect. Do you not know the least Christian is a better judge than the world? And uh, we miss that today. We think that, well, they need to have this position or this. Uh, a Christian is keen to the, what the Spirit of the living God is saying. A true Christian, and I'm going to deal with this intensely here in a few minutes, but a true Christian grabs a hold of the deeper things. A true Christian tends to have an eternal view of what is happening around him or her than what is the, the temporal side of it. And, and I, I see this a lot in, in my dealings with the evangelicals uh, that a lot of Christians are trying to um, take the things of the world, plug them into the church, and see what happens. Uh, I had an opportunity last July to hear a, a Jim Shaddix preach down in Albuquerque. And one of the statements, multiple statements, but one statement that he made that I thought, he says, we are trying things in the church now that have not had time to fail. And I thought, how interesting is that? I've had to spend time with uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Olford, and he's had the privilege to preach on every continent except Antarctica. And his comment is, is his message has never changed. It's always the gospel. It is always the word, and I don't worry about a method. I don't worry about a system. I don't worry about the culture. I don't worry about uh, what is happening in the culture. He says, if you're not preaching an unadulterated gospel, then you had better be concerned about the culture. He says, but if you're preaching an unadulterated gospel, it covers all nations, all men for all time. And I need not worry about the culture because the text will deliver itself. And I thought how fascinating that is uh, to, to, to think about. Um, and yet that's what the Apostle Paul, and he, we can go back. In this letter, he's already shared it with us that I was determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. What is our determination? What is the thing that pushes and motivates each of us as we press through this life? Is it Christ and him crucified or is it things around us? And when you think about the things around us, you will be lost. He says here in verse 4, literally, that it would be better for an infant in Christ to pass a judgment than to have any of the best lost lawyers. And we all laugh and we say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, we all know that there's only one lawyer in heaven and that's Christ. Uh, all the rest of them or whatever, and we've all heard the jokes and all the rest of it, but how many of us are quickly looking for litigation when something happens? How many of us look for our rights, our civil rights? The second thing he says is that do you have the attitude, the right attitude that a Christian has? And we spent a couple of weeks on this in verses 7 and 8. He says this is already a defeat to you to have lawsuits against one another. You're suing one another. Listen, there's only one reason that you sue one another, that you sue anybody, and that is to get from that person. That's why a lot of, uh, uh, of those type lawyers 
will do it on a percentage basis. Why? They want the money. That's why you hear these judgments are settled for tens of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, uh, the one that we're all really familiar with is the lady who burned herself with Mc, at McDonald's. Okay? Uh, and I, I think she got close to $7 million. Uh, for. I'm thinking, if I had a Jaguar with a leather interior in it and I was wearing a silk suit, I still can't get that kind of cash. I mean, if you buy me a new seat for my Jaguar and you buy me a new suit, I, I still haven't got enough money there. Why did they want more money? Well, it's cash cow. And not a mad cow, a cash cow. Okay? Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that we are to love, your, love our, your enemies and to bless and do good to them and to pray for them. And that's your enemies. Okay? Remember, I, I watch people struggle with this. We look at Matthew 18 and it deals with church discipline. If you have a brother who sins against him, it has a sin, then you go to that brother and you confront him and if you win your brother back, you've done good. Okay, if they refuse to repent, you take a witness, right? Somebody acknowledge me. Yeah, right, my wife. All right, 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 we take a second witness. Okay, if they refuse to change after two have gone forward, what do you do? No, <laughs> you take them to the church. Okay, if they refuse to repent at that point, what do you do? You do what? What do you do? What? Word, word, word. You treat him as an unbeliever. What does that mean? You try to love him into the kingdom. It, it isn't you set him outside of the church and throw rocks at him and hate them. You do what? You treat him as an unbeliever, which means what? I'm trying to reach out to you to restore your relationship with your Lord and your Savior. I, that blows my mind. It's like, I will turn my back and I won't speak to you. I won't wave to you anymore. If I see you in the credit union, I will walk out and wait for you to do your transaction. So I'm not in the same room with you. And you know what the tragedy is? Many of us this day treat unbelievers that very way. I don't understand it. Remember when uh, our, the ex-president had his little exposure, shall we say? I never heard so many Christians in my life getting down on him. I can't believe this. We should, you know, take him out, impeach him, shoot him, drag him through the mud, do something. What do you expect from an unbeliever? Really? Why? I, I think the thing that bothered me the most is everybody acts surprised. I mean... <laughs> All you had to do was ask somebody from Arkansas. And so why would I expect it? I, the hard problem that I had is that his church in Arkansas didn't do nothing. I did have a problem with that. But as far as what would you expect from him? Yet we are to reach out to these people as Christ reached out to you and I. Uh, and, and we looked at this in the light of forgiveness. How often do you forgive? As often as Christ has forgiven you. 
All right? How are you to forgive? As Christ has forgiven you. To whom? Anyone who is your brother. Okay? And your brother is not in reference to the body of Christ. Your brother is anybody who isn't you. That's how you are to forgive. The same as Christ has forgiven you. Okay? I'll give you a little footnote to this because some of you are asking me about the court system and uh, judicial systems and things like that. There is a judicial system that exists that God has put in place in you and I, our, our community for the protection of the innocent. All right? <clears throat> That's not what this text is talking about. If someone murders another person, even if a Christian is the, the, the person who commits the crime, there is a penal system put in and they are under justice to do what God has demanded is just. Right? I, I, that's, I don't have any problem with that. All right? And that is not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is when you spill your hot coffee on you and you decide you're going to sue somebody. Okay? You can't do that. Why? Why are you doing it? I found three times that the writer of this, the human writer of this text, the Apostle Paul, used the legal system to his benefit, to his privilege. One is Acts chapter 16, verses 35 through 39. One is Acts 22, verses 24 through 26. And the other is Acts 25, verses 10 through 12. Okay? All three times he proclaimed his right as a Roman citizen. Okay? And he was protected under Roman law as a Roman citizen. All three times he was doing it to defend one thing. The privilege of the work of God and the speaking of the truth of God. Period. He never did any litigation for his own personal protection. He never did anything for his own personal comfort or his own personal rights. But he understood as a Roman citizen that he had a right to speak truth. And what God was doing, he had a right also as a Roman citizen to proceed with those things. Okay? So when you think about going to court, ask yourself as a question, is, am I going because the uh, word of God is being impeached or the work of God is being impugned? Sure would keep us out of court, wouldn't it? Okay? Um, I'll give you an illustration of that. If they came today and told us that we could not have church here, um, I'd get a lawyer. Okay, why? That is the work of God and the proclamation of God. I will fight that. Okay, but when it comes to anything else, I'm not going to. Okay, we, he, he exercised, we should exercise our legal right only when it comes against the proclamation of the word of God and when it comes against the work of God. And we should exercise our right. Now I want to move into this, light, this <clears throat> last point. The, they misunderstood... Uh, uh, the relationship to the world. Uh, and I think many of us do. All right? Here's what he says, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, that's a rhetorical question. I mean, it makes sense. 
All right? But look at verse 11. So that's for some of you. Okay? Some people will try to use this text to say you can lose your salvation. Okay? But if you take the text with verse 9 and 11 together, you can see it pretty clearly that that's not what he's saying. He's contrasting uh, some things here. Okay? Um, This is... uh, this is what I would call in today's vernacular, in your face. Okay, Paul kind of takes 9, 10, and 11 and kind of cuts through it and says, uh, I want to be as clear here as I can be. Okay, um, He's basically saying you are different than the world. Why are you playing their way? Why are you operating by their philosophy? their wisdom. Why are you governing your life by the way they act instead of the attitude of Christ and the settling of of these issues within the family of Christ? I mean, that's basically what he does. Or do you not know? I mean, and it's... That's one of those that I would have to say is dripping with sarcasm. See... You're acting like the ungodly, Paul is saying. He says, you're acting the way you used to be. Don't operate in that system by that rule. You operate with the attitude of Christ. And Christ is the attitude of forgiveness. Accept the wrong. If someone has offended you and and has truly, let's say, they've really done something that is against you, that has wronged you, let God bring about the justice. Let God bring about the justice. That's basically what he's saying. You have been washed, he says. You have been sanctified, he says. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Spirit of God. Why are you doing acting like that? It's almost like when a parent goes to the child. You know better than that. Well, whatever possessed you. Ever heard that? I read about those. Your behavior is totally inconsistent with who you are. What you're doing... The way you are doing it, the way you are treating each other is more a characteristic of the godless than it is those who will inherit the kingdom. You're acting like you haven't been changed. Last two weeks in my messages, I've used a little phrase. I'm going to see if you've been paying attention, all right? I call it the salvation transformation. Okay? I've shared with you a principle that is biblical and and how we've kind of messed with it in our society today. I can tell you where it came from. I can tell you who brought it into the church and all the rest of it, but that would really benefit nothing this day. Okay? You will hear taught in a lot of churches today that at a point in your life, you had a, uh, a salvation experience, and at that point you were justified. As you live your life from that point, as you're going through life, 
you are being sanctified. All right, and then as you're being sanctified, as when you die, you will be glorified. You'll be in the presence of Christ and you'll be glorified. That's not biblical. Okay, it's cool. And I can understand if you look at some people and things that you see, that you say, well, it would sure seem that way, except for one problem. It's not biblical. All right? Because the Bible teaches that at that point that you and I would call that salvation experience, at that very point, you are justified. Now, I'll deal with these terms. But the Bible also teaches that at that point you are sanctified. And the Lord Jesus himself in the 17th chapter of his gospel and in the uh, third chapter of 2 Corinthians and some other places says that even now you are glorified. So I would argue that justification, sanctification, glorification equals salvation. You can't have two out of three. You have all three and you are saved. That is what is taught here in this text also. Okay? He says, you are sons of the kingdom. You are at the opposite end of everything from an unbeliever. If an unbeliever is this, you are 180 degrees opposite of it. If an unbeliever is this, you are 180 degrees opposite of it. Let me list this through some things that that I want you to grasp that the kingdom of God is. All right? The unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Please understand that. They don't even have the same sphere of influence that a believer has. Do you understand that? The things that make my attitudes, the things that make my conscience, the things that make me decide this or that, an unbeliever is in a completely different influence than a believer. They don't exist in the same world even though we may walk on the same planet. They don't even breathe the same air that a believer breathes. They don't even have the capacities that a believer has. They are completely different foreign group than the body of Christ. How could those who are not even in the kingdom judge the subjects of the kingdom? That's Paul's argument starting in verse 9. He says, it does, he says this, this, this isn't even logical. Why are you behaving like those who aren't in the kingdom when you're, you are in the kingdom? Okay, I want to show you something here that he does. Now watch this, because this, I believe, is one of the great plagues that exists in the church in America today. I shared with you, I had an opportunity to meet with some Russian pastors and things, and they have a, a great passion and a great fervor of prayer for us here in America, the believers in America. You know why? They say we are under greater spiritual oppression and attack than they were even under communism. And he says, and the tragedy is, we don't know it. And I thought, hmm. Um, But 
Uh, I can also show you through history that seems to be the norm. Give enough, a man enough freedom, he will hang himself. Look what he says here. Verse 9. <coughs> the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That makes sense. I mean, that, you don't have to be a deep theologian to understand that. But look what he makes a statement here. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You know, there's a spiritual gift that is out there that many of us will not speak about. Okay? Many of us don't talk about it. Many of us may not even know that the gift exists. All right? And, and it's just sort of this, is, is it really that big a deal? And yet, when I see that single gift exercised, it catches more grief than any of the other gifts. You take a human being, they, they come to Jesus Christ, they have now been infused into the kingdom of God. God, the Holy Spirit, now empowers them with a supernatural ability. All right? And that ability now is, is this, uh, it's a manifold grace of God that allows these gifts. We've all heard of the gift of prophecy. We all think that's cool. That's that one or you can just sort of yell at people. You know, you can get up at the pulpit and I'm a prophet, sit down and shut up. You know, and I'm exercising my gift. And then if you're a, a pastor or a leader in the church, you like to have a whole bunch of people who have that gift of giving. Right? I need a lot of people that give. And the more the merrier. Right? Because, you know, that's just the way we motivate ourselves. All right, but you go through it. You, we, we've, we've heard the gift of tongues. Uh, well, some of you have. We, we know that there's the gift of miracles. Uh, we, we hear this. But you know, there's a gift that exists that we don't like to hear about. And it's a supernatural enabling in the body of Christ. Now listen, I cannot find anywhere where the gifts have been removed. I, I've heard a lot of people try to argue a lot of text. Um, but I don't see it. I don't, I don't see it anywhere. And I'll get into this when I get into 12 and 13 and 14 of this book. So I am a firm believer that the spiritual gifts still exist and they're still being energized and they're still being used. But I have one gift that gets me into more problems than anything that I've ever done. Now, you would think that the gift of prophecy, you know, you see it black and white, tell it like it is and all that. That doesn't get me into as much problem as the other gift. Anybody want to take a guess at what it is? Discernment. Discernment. There is a supernatural ability to discern. Here's the problem with the gift of discernment. If you see something wrong, what is your responsibility under the leading of the Holy Spirit? Pray about it. No. What is it? Confront the wrong. If a person teaches something and you think it's wrong, you say, I think it's wrong, what is their response? I know that I, very seldom do I ever see anybody say, prove it. Very seldom do I see anybody say, uh, let us reason together from the scriptures. Usually the first thing I see is the veins on their forehead stick out. Okay? I don't think that's a spiritual gift, but you usually see it. The Apostle Paul is using that gift here. And he's basically saying, you're not. Don't be deceived. 
Don't be deceived, he says. So he gives this catalog. Now, I want to share with you a principle that um, is hard to find in the church in America today. Okay? Here's the principle. Don't think your salvation and your lifestyle are two different things. Okay? Don't think that your lifestyle or that your salvation and your lifestyle are two separate things. Your salvation is your lifestyle. Okay? So he lists this catalog here. Wonderful catalog. Right after do not be deceived, he gives a catalog. It's a, 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 what I call a list, a catalog, um, activities, if you want, that are what humans are. Okay? Um, what's tragic about this list is it's almost like reading the Denver Post. I can usually go through the Denver Post um, and find every one of these going on. Okay? Let's start with it here. Now, I want to understand something. This is the unsaved. Right? These are lost people. This is how they act. So he takes off with, neither do fornicators. Okay? Fornicator is sexually immoral. Okay? And it covers all of it. All right? This is anything sexual outside what God has given in marriage. Okay? Remember the great phrase where he shook his finger? I did not have sexual relations with that woman. No, you fornicated. Okay? It's that simple. All right? Anything sexually oriented outside of the bounds of marriage is a fornicator. He says, so the common practice of the lifestyle of the lost is they are sexually immoral. They are fornicators. Second thing, <clears throat> nor idolaters. Idolaters are false religions or false systems. Okay? Um, there's a book out right now that is all over the place. It's crossed all denominational lines. Everybody and their brother's got a... Uh, and they're all dealing with it. And if I named it, I'd probably get in trouble. Um, I'm not going to name it, but he has a text. If you're reading the book, you will come to the text. And he will say in here, if you say this prayer, you are now a child of God. Is that true? Can anybody show me in the scriptures where it says, say a certain prayer, you are now a child of God. It's not in there. So what is it? Well, my gift of discernment would say it is a false system. It's a false system. And I, I, I don't really want to get into any more of it than that because I can tell you this. False religion and false systems, more so false systems, are growing more rapidly um, now than ever before in the history of man. They're everywhere. I don't 
false religions don't bother me as bad as false systems do. Okay? There is a plethora of false systems right now. I, I, you can go to any Christian bookstore right now, and I guarantee that probably 75% of it is a false system. And it's just the people who write the books, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not saying that they're lost. But what I'm saying is they are not accurately dividing the word of God. Okay. And right now, false systems are growing more rapidly than ever before. That's idolatry. Next on our list. Nor adulterers. Okay, adulterers is sexual immorality in the bonds of marriage. I got married, but now I'm playing around. Okay, look around you, brothers and sisters. Tell me that fornicators, idolaters, and adulterers is not the norm for America. I don't... don't, I don't see how you can deny it, all right? And understand adulterers can be men or women. Okay, adultery, the sin of adultery is equal rights. Okay, this next word is fun. Effeminate. What in the blue blazes is that? The literal Greek translation is effeminate by perversion. Okay, And it's kind of a bizarre word, and it's a little difficult. I'll try to do my best with what I've found out about it. The problem is it only shows up one time in Holy Writ. Guess where? Right here. Okay, and that's it. Okay. um, It's Malakos in the, the original language, and it's general enough to almost include anything. All right. It has in mind perversion. Okay, um, and it has in mind the exchanging of sexual roles. Be careful, because I know where everybody wants to go, but it's a lot broader term than that. Okay, have you ever seen a woman CEO? That falls under this term. Okay. Anytime I change the role that God designed of authority and submission, that's the sexual role. Anytime I change that, malakos is the word that God uses. Okay, um, But it has a perversion side to it. Okay, And it has to do... <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. It has to do... With the exchanging of garments. Okay? Now, I read an article. It was a really cool article. Because uh, this, this will give you an idea how my, my brain is wired. This article was talking about the freedoms that exist in California. And it said that one out of ten women in Southern California aren't. I'll let you think about that for a while. I'll let it ponder. One out of ten women in Southern California 
aren't. Anybody get that yet? I'll let you guys ponder that. My response to reading that article is, who verified that? How do you know that? Better yet, do I want to know how you know that? Okay? Um, Our society, you will hear about cross-dressers. You will hear about transvestites. We have a city just south of us, almost into New Mexico, that has a great notoriety in our country. Trinidad. Does anybody know what Trinidad is noted for? Sexual change operations. Effeminate fits that that understanding. Okay? Um, So it can be the surgery. It can be any kind... um, Anything that exchanges the roles of the sexes, okay? Now, I'm going to give you a footnote here, and I want you to think about this, okay? You've got to think with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, it says that the woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I can tell you what everybody wore at the time of the writing of Deuteronomy. It has absolutely nothing to do with outer garb. Okay, the men would wear a great robe as a woman would wear a great robe. What I would call today a muumuu. I mean, that's what it looks like. And then sometimes you could style it up with a sash or something or a hood or a scarf. A turban could offset your eyes or something to this effect. Um, (laughs) The text, let me ask you a question. It says in the Bible, thou shalt not kill. Is that what it says? Then what we're doing in Iraq is wrong? No, it says thou shalt not murder. So when you look at the Hebrew text, you've got to ask yourself a whole bunch of different little questions. The, you shall not wear a woman's garb. There are certain things even this day that women wear that men don't. Right? That's what it means. I, okay, please grab a hold of this. It isn't, you know, am I wearing pants or a dress? or No, it's a little deeper than that. Okay, why? It just ain't right for a man to wear certain things that women wear. Okay? I mean, logically, God says if you do, it's only an abomination. Okay? So grab a hold of this and and don't try to, to force something on people. Well, if a woman doesn't wear a skirt, she... Really? Okay? I can tell you this, that long hair on a man is is contentious, and I'll deal with that. It's in this book, and I'll let you guys figure out what it is. I got some fun stuff coming up in this book, okay? I haven't decided whether I'm just a glutton for punishment or really praying that the Lord returns and I don't have to deal with it, <laughs> all right? But when you, when you look at this stuff, don't do anything that exchanges the role of the sexes. That's what an effeminate is. It, you know, um, it, it doesn't mean girly boy. Okay, we've used that phrase and it, you know, he sort of has feminine tendencies. That ain't what it's talking about. 
That ain't what it's talking about. It's talking about when you exchange the role of the man and a woman, um, these are characteristics that are of the unsaved. These are characteristics of the ungodly. And it's part of the society that existed in Corinth. It is a part of the society that exists today. Let me tell you something. One of the greatest damages that has been done because of the lack of discernment in the body of Christ is women's lib. The, 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 the women's lib movement. Because what happened is they've taken women and put them in a place where now they're not protected. That is the greatest tragedy. And that tragedy has gotten so massive now that they have been so successful at that that they've actually um, seared the conscience of women in the killing of their unborn child. That a woman can only look at that as a piece of tissue. That's how successful that has been, okay? And that is the deception that exists, okay? So be real careful in, in what you buy into because there's a role, an authority and submission role that God designed from the beginning. Uh, it's, it's the give, let me give you an illustration that is used in uh, Ephesians and Colossians that Christ is the head of the church, you can't assert that authority. You know what the sin of Catholicism is? They've asserted that authority. Who is the head of the church? Christ is. Who's the head of the Roman church? The Pope is. Okay? You know, I, I've had a meeting several times with Catholic leaders and said the only difference between your religion and my religion is you believe you're the authority, I believe the Scripture is the authority. And, and then in my... <laughs> well, we won't go there. But, uh, but uh, it's, it, you know, I, I can look at my Bible and say it is unerrant and hasn't done anything wrong. I look at yours and say, well, just read the paper. Okay? That is, so you, I want you to understand that the role of authority and the role of submission has always been there. Okay? Look at ver the next fifth thing here in this catalog of men, or, yeah, catalog of mankind. Uh, effeminate, nor the literal translation here, okay, from the original language is tr would be translated abusers of themselves. Okay, that is what homosexuality is. All right, it's two words: arahin, meaning male, and kotai, meaning bed. Okay. And it has to do with the conception that takes place at marriage in the marriage bed, but it is between men. And God says that is only abusing themselves. Okay? And that's what it is. The life expectancy for homosexual is mid-40s. Um, and, you know, and listen, that is without AIDS. All right, that is, it's, it, the human anatomy is not designed for what they plan, okay? Um, we are told today that it's a biological thing and we, we need to be tolerant. Um, I think everybody here has heard uh, the uh, problems in the Anglican church. You know them as the Episcopals, and we're making a big to deal about it. Do you know that this has been the practice of the Methodists for about 15 years now? 20 years, almost 20 years. I preached at the largest Methodist church in um, northern Georgia 
And um, I was told that about 65% are uh, homosexual. And I mean, it was a big old church. I mean, there was a, a bunch of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, so the Anglicans are making the news, but this is not a new issue. Okay. You know, there's even in Denver, there's a homosexual uh, Quaker church. And I don't even know how that thing works, but that ought to be. There's a part of me says, I need to go see this, but I don't really, that ain't that big a hurry. But it just, I don't know, something about the Quakers, homosexuals just don't seem right. Um, I, I want you to understand something where we're at right now. He's not saying that any of this is unforgivable. That ain't what's being said. He's saying this is the characteristics and the nature of the lost. Okay? He's not saying that you don't love these people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these are sins. God hates sin and in it, its characteristic of unbelieving, unregenerate people. Okay? Um, let me explain something to you that it, it seems to be missed. At the time of the writing of this letter... Homosexuality uh, was uh, was more than widespread. Okay, uh, actually, homosexuality was on uh, the the same level as normal. Um, Fourteen. Okay, do you understand that at the writing of this, you have Greece and it's under Roman domination, Roman rule. Everybody understands that. Fourteen out of the first fifteen emperors of Rome were homosexual. Okay? Please get a hold of this. Um, Socrates was a homosexual. Plato, most people believe, was a homosexual. And the reason that they believed that he was uh, was because uh, he wrote a, a, a great piece of work called The Symposium of Love. And it is based on homosexual love. Okay, Nero, who would be the emperor at the writing of the Corinthian letters, had a boy named Spurius castrated, young boy, when he became emperor, the boy was about nine or ten, had him castrated, and the boy lived with Nero as his wife. Okay, when Nero died, Spurius was passed on to the next emperor, Ortho, and lived with Ortho as his wife. Right, so it was the norm. It was a pattern of living. It was very, very common. Not only that, homosexuality had actually been elevated as something superior. What does that sound familiar? As something that you need to look at and look at honestly, because we believe that this truly is more freeing than any heterosexual relationship. And he said, in verse 11, these are characteristics of the former life. This is the characteristics of lost people. Next thing on our list here, verse 10, thieves. Okay? It literally is a criminal, petty theft. Just crooks. You know, that is steal anything. Just for something to do. Next on it, 
on our list here. Covetous, greedy. Do I really need to illustrate that? Do I? Is anybody here blind to greed and coveting that exists in society? If you are, then you must be newborn. <laughs> All right. Uh, drunkenness. Right? I mean, do I really? I mean, drunkenness is the word drunken. No, it doesn't have pharmacae. It is got anything to do. It's people who just get hammered all the time on as much alcohol as they can get their hands on. Okay? You know what's amazing about it? At the writing of this letter, the wild people. Okay? The people who were considered the extreme alcoholics. I mean, the extreme bizarre behavior people were those who would drink anything over 6% in alcohol content of wine. So those of you who like your Bacardi's 151 are maniacs. Okay? Revilers, it has to do with, uh, some of your translations may say slanderers or swindlers. It literally has to do with uh, abuses with the mouth. Okay? Abusing with the tongue. And then last on our list um, are the swindlers. Um, I call them ripoff artists. Um, these are all categories in which the world is defined by the Word of God. Okay? Now look what he does. In verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. The Corinthian assembly was a bunch of these kind of people. How cool. You know, I think about people who go to church because there's such a higher class of people there with higher moral fiber. They'd have fun in the church in Corinth, wouldn't they? Nice crowd, huh? Look at the list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. You know what's really weird about that? That's what Castle Rock Baptist Church is. A bunch of ex-fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminates, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Many of us used to be. Now listen, I prefer that you don't stand up and tell us which one you were. (laughs) You can hold that to yourself. But I know that I can look upon you all and say, there's not one of you in this room today who do not fall somewhere in this list. And I would even be safe in saying, many of us would probably fall in multiple categories of this list. Um, when I look at this, I think that God really doesn't have a lot to work with, does he? That is why when I make the statement of a salvation transformation, there has to be something. To be honest with you, when I think about the Apostle Paul saying, it is better off, you know, I am dead and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Why? What in a human being can God have to work with? 
that is a benefit to salvation. Nothing. All it is is a container to hold his righteousness. That's all it is. Paul calls it a bunch of clay pots. And that was the, the clay jugs that you didn't spend any money for that you took the waste product out of the house with. He says, that's what we are. Why? Because God doesn't have anything to work with. Why any man is in Christ is a new creation? Well, think about it. You better be a new creation. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. We have to be a new creation because there isn't anything worth keeping. The problem that you and I struggle with is why do we want to hold on to it? And I say that the reason you want to hold on to it is because you don't yet trust Him. And so you hold on to it. Well, if I don't have my job, if I don't have this, if I don't have my house, my two-and-a-half-car garage, and my two-and-a-half-cars to fill it up, and this, and the 401K, and the IRA, and the Roth, if I don't have these things, how can I? You have nothing you can bring. You have nothing you can bring. Look right here what he says next. I want Verse 11, he says, such were some of you. Okay, then he says, but. Okay, now that's the biggest but that I've run in. Wait a minute, that didn't sound right, did it? <laughs> yeah, pay attention to the but here. All right, why? Well, for reason is, three times he uses it, and it gives emphasis to the contrast. Okay? So he gives a contrast, and he does it three times. It's based on the word, word but. All right? The church isn't full of perfect people. Okay? It is full of transformed people. What Christ offers a man is listed here to you. What Christ is saying to man is, I'll take you whether you're an adulterer, I'll take you whether you're effeminate, I'll take you whether you're a homosexual, I will take you whether you're a thief, a robber, a murderer. Jesus is saying, I don't care what you are, because I am going to recreate you anyway. And he says that I do it in the name of who I am. In fact, I argue this very day, this right here is the single greatest proof of Christianity. You don't see this in Islam. You don't see this in Buddhism and Hinduism. You don't see this in any of the others. This is only seen... In Christianity, how is it that I can have a person who offends me seven times in a day says to me, I've repented seven times in a day and I can forgive them as Christ has forgiven me? Go try to do that in your own strength. You can't do it. It's impossible. How has Christ transformed your life? Ask yourself that question. We, we have the Lord's table the first of the month and we ask each other, how's Christ you know, changed you in the last 30 days? How has Christ transformed you? I, well, you know, maybe I'd be safer. Is whatever your life is, has Christ changed it? 
If it hasn't changed, perhaps you have a problem. Listen, I know that there are still temptations. I know that we stumble from time to time. But the habitual evil, the habitual sin of our lives is no longer a constant pattern and a constant thing that we do. We have a pattern has been broken by acts of holiness. I like that. I think it was Arthur Pink who said that. It might have been Robert Murray McShane. My life has been broken with random patterns of holiness. And I thought, what? Listen, this may be the greatest truth of Christianity. Why? From all backgrounds, from all nations, from all levels of intellect, from all levels of education, from all kinds of sin, they've come to be, you've come to Christ to be transformed. And the Corinthian church, just like all churches, were full of people who were living and breathing evidence of the recreative power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain this. Salvation is not a process. Salvation is a transformation. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Whoever you are, you must be transformed. If you're not transformed, I don't think you're saved in light of Scripture. I've had people come up to me and they say, well, Terry, the reason that you're the way you are is... From where you came from, you had a conversion experience. And I just look at them and says, perhaps you need one. I mean, if you, if you want to think of my life is worse than anybody else's because of where I came from, show me in the list where you're disqualified. Because I guarantee you, there's not a human being who's ever walked the planet Earth that doesn't fall into that list. A list that fits every human. So if you're a child of God, you must be transformed. And the only way you could ever be transformed is if God does it. And you know what? As long as I've been in this church, I have had the great pleasure to again and again and again and again to see it in some of you. And I have no greater joy. You know, I appreciate your prayers that you lift me up in prayer. I appreciate all the things that you do. But the greatest reward that I ever receive from this body of believers is transformed lives. To see people change. There's no greater thrill. I've seen it. And you know what? Willie was making fun there uh, at the business meeting last Sunday, and he says, we send him off to California so we can be, so he can be encouraged because we don't encourage him, okay? It helps me when I see you who I labor with change before my very eyes. That is an encouragement because God is in the business of transforming lives. All right, I'm going to look at these. I want to show you this real quickly. Verse 11. <clears throat> you were washed. Um, kind of an interesting um, 
phrasing there. It literally has in line, um, we're willing to be washed, is literally what it means. And I think that what you have there is Paul going back to what he knows of the, the foot washing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, remember when he was going around washing the, defeat, the, 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 the disciples' feet? And he got to Peter. He says, you'll not wash mine. He says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And what did he say? Give me bath. <laughs> wash all of me, right? He says, no, you only need your feet to be washed. The word there is regeneration. Okay, you see it. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and in the washing of regeneration, John's gospel chapter 3, we hear it again as born again. You came unto be washed. What does that mean? Um, It's a whole new living. Um, It's an act of God in which the principles of the new and the divine life are planted in a person. Okay, it's a, let me tell you something. This is radical. Right? I see kids who want to, uh, you know, wear the, their hat backwards, okay, to keep the sun off the back of their neck or something like that. I don't know what that is. Or they wear it sideways. Um, you know, the, I see some other more radical things. I see pe- that young people want to dress a certain way, look a certain way, and, and they want to be radical. No, you're not. When you dress like that, you're just saying, look at me, I look just like the world. You want to be radical? Be 180 degrees out of the world. Be washed. Be regenerate. Be new. Be transformed. Okay, the next thing he says here, but you who were sanctified. You have a transformed capacity for behavior. I have the ability to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. Sanctified is literally holy. You have been, past tense, made holy, and you have been given an ability, a capacity for a holy life instead of the old sin pattern. Okay? You have been, but he says, but you have been justified. Justified means that you have changed your standing before God Almighty. You used to be guilty. This drives me nuts when I see Christians hanging on to guilt. You've been justified. You used to be guilty. You are not guilty anymore. You used to be condemned. You used to be damned. You used to be an object of punishment. But now God declares you righteous. God says you're no longer guilty. You're no longer worthy of punishment. Not only that, you are free. You no longer do I condemn you. I release you to freedom and blessing. You are no longer a slave to the world or the things of the world. You were like this, Paul says, but you have been washed. You have been regenerated. You have been, trans- you have been born again. You are recreated. You now have a, you have been sanctified. You now have the capacity for holiness. You have been justified. You have been given a new standing before a holy God. Now, let me explain to you something. child of God has all three of these, and it is an absolute transformation. Okay? There may be an ignorance in that person. 
Maybe they don't know some of the things of the Word of God. Maybe they haven't been around a Christian long enough. Maybe they haven't been discipled. Maybe they're just an infant in Christ. And they don't know what they have. I hear people praying for the peace of God. You already have it. I hear people praying for His power. You already have it. I've heard people pray for more grace. You've already got more grace than you'll ever know what to do with. Why do they do that? They just don't know. I'm not condemning anybody on that. People stumble. Okay? But there is an absolute transformation. And let me tell you something. By the world standards, it is radical. The other thing I want you to understand about being washed, being sanctified, being justified, it's real. It ain't a game. It isn't this nirvana thing. It isn't when I arrive, I'll be, uh uh-uh. It is now. It is happening now. Once dead to God, you are now given a new life. You were once guilty and damned, and you were, the only thing you had ahead of you was eternal torment. One day you were helplessly and hopelessly engulfed in self and sin. Now I have the ability to consider others more important than myself. I now have the ability to love my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. It is in a process. It is now. All I have to do is grasp it. How in the world does this happen? First and foremost, it happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word name is all that he is. So when you look at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say because of who he is and because of what he has done. When Jesus Christ um, hung on the cross and said, tell tell us die, you know what he said? It is finished. It is not in the process of being finished. It does not have to have a few things added to it. It is done. And you know what? We can see it. I can see the finished work of Jesus Christ in his people this very day. Christ provides us. And then he says here, and the spirit of our God empowers it or imparts it, however you want to look at it. Who does the washing? The Holy Spirit. Who sanctifies us? The Holy Spirit. Who justifies us? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Your new creations. Brand spanking new. Like never before. You used to be like this. You used to be fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminates, homosexual thieves, covetous and drunkards, revilers and swindlers. But now... You are washed, but now you are sanctified, but now you are justified. And it's done all in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit of the living God. You have been transformed. And the Apostle Paul is saying, because you have been transformed, would you please act like it? Suing each other is inconsistent with your new position with your attitude as a Christian and your relationship to the world. And that is to your shame. Amen. Father, I give you the praise for this time for your word. Lord, I pray that we heard and we heard from you and you only. Lord, uh, what an amazing truth in so few words. Father, let us who today who have been redeemed, who have been regenerated. Father, let us not act like the world. Let us not buy into the philosophies of the world. Let us not buy into the attitudes and actions of the world, the wisdom of this world. But, Father, let us rest in the strong assurances that we have been washed. 
we have been sanctified, we have been justified, and it is solely and wholly by you, Lord Jesus. And Father, I thank you for your spirit who imparts that to each and every child of God. Father, if there be some this day who fall into the list, who have a pattern, have a habit of fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminate, homosexuality, homosexuality, thieves, covetous, drunkards, and revilers, and swindlers. Father, let them know first and foremost, they will not inherit your kingdom. And Father, perhaps I pray that today you will give them the new birth the new holiness, and the new position before you. Father, you're the only one who can do this. And I rest in that assurance in you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen.